Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Inside Insights, the recent winner of the MR Podcast of the Year. My name is Ryan. I'm joined, as always, by my host, Patricia, and our producer, Kelsey. What's up, ladies? Hey, dude. How's it going? It's, it's your birthday today. It's my birthday. Ooh, 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 yep. ooh. Happy so, as so I am. You have, yep, Patricia turned 30 today. And right, we're recording 30. this on May 11th. So if uh, next May 11th, mark your calendars, please send Patricia flowers and nice bottles of wine and things for her dogs to play with. There you go. But even if you if you get this podcast and you feel like sending them anyway, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with yeah, sending Yeah, late birthday present's year. fine. Amen. You know, I'm while good. we're at it, my birthday is December 12th. And you know who else's birthday is on December 12th? Kelsey Sullivan's. Two Woo-hoo! members of this show <laughs> have the same birthday. No big deal. So please also no mark your deal. calendars there. Um, I would really appreciate um, just good vibes. I don't need anything else. I got all the things I need. Um, but if you're in Boston, maybe take Kelsey and I out for a libation. As you heard on a previous episode, we do not discriminate on the libations. Equal um, opportunity drinkers. It, in exactly. May 11th. I'm, <laughs> for those of you on the YouTube crew, thanks for watching. I am rocking an NBA Jam t-shirt today. Shout out to the Boston Celtics. Uh, game five of the Eastern Conference semis. I really hope this sentence ages well. I'm a big basketball fan and my wife is not a big basketball fan because what basketball means is particularly playoffs. I'm watching the game pretty much every other night. So she probably wants them to lose. I really want them to win. But anyways, the NBA jam t-shirt is pretty sweet. It brings me back to my childhood. Um, But nobody came here to listen to me talk about the Celtics. Although ladies, maybe I have a secret career in NBA podcasting. I don't know. We're here to talk about data and insights. We could do, yeah, we do all the things. I got all the equipment now. So, you know, um, this is a special episode. Um, we, we invited our founder and CEO, Steve Phillips, to join. Steve uh, is somebody who I've had the pleasure of building a company with um, for the last eight years of my life. They've been eight wonderful years. Um, I've never worked with somebody who I have a more complimentary uh, set of skills with, um, who I can argue with so productively, um, and who shares a lot of the same values that I do. And it's the reason I joined Zappy eight years ago was uh, betting on him and his vision. And, um, you know, obviously when you're building companies, it's not as linear as everybody thinks it is. There's uh, dark days and there's great days and we've been through them all together. And uh, I really wanted to have him on to share his vision for data and insights and where it's going. Um, I think you'll have, you'll enjoy the conversation, quite a bit of bants between the two of us. Ladies, I haven't told you this yet, but uh, in my notebook right here, yeah. Is a whole bunch of ideas for interviews for season five. No big Woo-hoo. deal. I'm pumped up. It's going to be great. We're going to bring the heat back as always. Um, yeah. And our last two episodes have broken records for the amount of people who have listened. So Steve, no pressure. You better get your social media game on and share this interview. I think we should get into no the combo. It's a real good one. Let's do Go it. Go for it. Hi, Steve. How you doing, buddy? Not bad, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad to finally have you on the podcast. It's taken me a long time um, and you employ me. And so I appreciate that about you. And I'm really excited to have a conversation about where the industry is going with you. So we're going to have some fun today. Look, it's just really exciting to get the chance to be on an award-winning podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we won podcast of the year, uh, which was super cool. As I said to Steve, I didn't expect to win it. And uh, I just want to thank everybody who voted for us. Um, but I really want to thank Kelsey and Patricia, because without them, the, sh- the show wouldn't happen. Um, so thank you, ladies. So I was uh, at IIEX, great conference this week, put on by the Green Book folks. Shout out to all of them. They did a great job. And somebody came up to me and asked me how I, f- how I came to work for Zappy. 
Um, so I'd love to, let's start there because uh, we're coming up on eight years of adventure. Um, and I was at the time working for a company called GMI, which was getting ruined by Kantar. And so I was looking for something else to do, but I didn't want to do something that wouldn't scale. My wife had built a dog care company, but it was big enough where she was now running a business versus working with dogs. And so she gave me an ultimatum, either you run this or I'm selling it. And uh, Lenny Murphy sends me a LinkedIn message. Um, and for any of you who've ever tried to message me on LinkedIn, I'm not good at messaging on LinkedIn. So I probably haven't responded to you. My email address is ryan at zappystore.com. Please email me. Anyways, I responded to Lenny because he said, I have a gig you might be interested in, dot, dot, dot. You had just won the IAX Innovation Exchange Award. I had no idea what Zappy did, but there was a bit of buzz about the company at the time. And so, uh, so we met. And... My final interview was in Atlanta. And I remember making the mistake of saying to you, oh, come check me out, I'm gonna be presenting. So our interview was over lunch. And you know, for those of you who ever go to a conference, um, the conferences are funny because you eat dry salmon and rice in a big open room. And so we're having a job interview in the middle of this thing. And one of my customers comes and sits with us. So we're both, Steve and I look at each other and we're like, "Never mind." <laughs> so we didn't end up doing the interview. And instead, Steve, Steve texted me and said, yeah, I'm going to go out and have a few beers with my friends. Would you like to join us? So I, I'm, to this day, I think the only reason I got the job was because I could drink a bunch of beers. I mean, I'm not sure if that's actually true or not, but um, it was a wonderful journey uh, to get to the place. But holy shit, what a ride we've been on. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I don't, I don't think I, we promised you um, roses and flowers along the way. I, th I think it's, it's always... Um, it's always interesting when you have change. It's uh, I, I I enjoy change. I enjoy um, the ups and downs, and you have to you have to just enjoy the ride. Um, so hopefully you have. I have enjoyed the ride. It's been incredible. I mean, I, I I wrote down some goals in the beginning, and we're about halfway to achieving those. So the, I I do believe our best years are in front of us, um, and uh, it's it's going to be good. But. So you started, I'm not, I'm not going to make you repeat the Zappy founding story, which uh, if you want to hear Steve's Zappy founding story, he's on a lot of podcasts. Uh, it has to do with wine. Um, and it has to do with um, coming up with an idea that eventually I think has really changed this industry. And so I thank you for doing that. And that's why I joined you because you were going to change this industry. When you started Zappy, the industry was in its infancy of adopting technology, right? So you either had to and by the industry, I mean the corporate landscape because Decipher, Confirmit, Dimensions, all these other platforms were really being used as operating systems for agencies. They were buying sample programming surveys, et cetera. But when you started, the brands either were insourcing by programming surveys on Qualtrics or SurveyMonkey or Decipher or hiring full service uh, agencies. Holy shit, has that changed? I was just at this conference. There's like a thousand tech companies, a lot of them do the exact same thing. Um, but, but what's the thing that you've noticed now that you didn't anticipate that night in your garden when you had the aha, if I combine tech and thinking, I could change this game? So I th I th if I look back on my career in the, in the time I've been in market research, not so much my career, but the time I've been in the research industry, there've been a couple of things that have been technologies that have been game changers. So I would say, I, I sort of missed the telephone revolution because I'm not quite that old, but we the industry went from face to face with telephone, and that did a couple of things. It it, it made uh, interviewing a lot 
quicker and cheaper. So it meant that you could go from doing a project in eight weeks to doing a project in five or six weeks. That probably happened in largely in the 80s. In the late 90s and the early 2000s, you had another revolution, which is all about fieldwork again, which was moving uh, online. And, and I, I've missed out on that revolution in the industry. I did not get involved. And I, if I had one regret, it was probably not piling into that um, because the people who did built great companies, made a lot of money and, and did some really interesting work. Really interesting. I work. think that I think that error for my first house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that both of those revolutions though did made, made the existing process faster and cheaper but didn't fundamentally change the way in, insight was used. And I think when I came up with the idea for pure full-scale automation for Zappi, it was to solve effectively a, a core client problem. And the core client problem was that market research was too slow and too expensive. So I went out of the way to try and make it faster and cheaper because I knew that would be popular. Right. So I knew people would want it faster and cheaper. What I didn't anticipate was if you make it so fast enough, if you make it happen in hours or days instead of weeks and months, it can change the way enterprises use that information. So it enables agility. It enables the use of things like design-led thinking for product creation. It enables people to be iterative, to, 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 to learn over time, to, to basically run advertising creation processes, product creation process in the way that you would run software sprints. Right. So it enables people to change, fundamentally change the way they, they build out the products and services that they're trying to, take, trying to take to market. And I think I did not expect that. I did not anticipate that. And that, that is um, an outcome of the collapse in timing that it takes to do a project. And it's taking it not from eight weeks to four weeks, but four weeks to a day, which means that you can think about something in the morning, have an argument with your team and then go, let's do some research. Let's come back to it tomorrow and then we can iterate. Right. And that's a fundamentally different way of running a business. And that that's the that's the element I did not anticipate. And so I don't know if you've seen this yet, so I must email it to you. But one of our customers was showing me uh, data of brands in their portfolio who use technology to test the way test the way they used to meaning we're doing it late stage as a validation exercise now they can do it fast and cheap and it's not just us we've i i, I attribute you to creating this movement now there's 800 platforms that do it which is great i think it's beautiful contrasted against brands that explore territories learn from them come up with storyboards and, and idea framings then they, they develop the idea further and they go to animatics and then they get to finish film. The proof is in the sales and the brand lifts. The brands that are doing that are selling more products and building brands for the longer term. This stuff works. And it's so I think that that insight that you had is profound, but frustratingly, that's still something today that needs to change. So I was having a discussion with one of our customers and what he said to me was, I've digitally transformed insights, but unless marketing changes the way they work, none of it will matter. And I think that's, you know, and we'll, we'll come on to our next, our next frontier in, in a little bit, but I, I think that that's something that uh, 
we need to change, right? So just just getting yet getting the way you used to work done quicker doesn't actually change the learning. It saves you a bit of money. That's good. Um, so I'll tell you the one the one naive thing that I uh, didn't anticipate. Um, <laughs> and you know what I'm going to say. I I was in the data collection business for a long time before coming uh, to to Zappy, and I thought to myself, ah, oh, phew. I get to leave it and go build a software company with this lovely man, Steve. He likes cricket. I like baseball. It'll be great. Um, sample's really important. And this industry has ignored it for a really, really long time. And I, I you know, I attribute uh, a lot of good work we've done to the sample industry. But naively in 2014, I would have never thought it was one of the biggest problems. And I think you would say the same, right? Like you thought people were going to want to change the surveys every single time. But that was always one of the friction points. Yeah, I, yeah, I think, and and probably naively, um, when we think about sample, I, we we shouldn't think about it in some sense as sample. I th I think the revelation we we've, we've come across, we've come to, particularly when you're continuously iterating, is quite how important data quality is. So, it, in a world where you, you're building an advertising campaign or a product and you do one project. You can have an argument about data quality, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult argument to have because you've got nothing to compare it to except the last campaign, which was a different campaign. When we're doing iterative test and learn, then you're, you're testing an ad or, or, a, or a product or a pack and then changing it a little bit and then seeing how that change has worked. And so the comparison data is so much closer both in time and in relation to the stimulus you're testing, right. the data quality becomes so important and so clear and obvious a, a, a criteria. And frankly, we sell data. We sell data and data quality is essential. So I think, again, it was it's the iteration factor that I didn't process of the change. And then that has a bunch of add-on effects across the industry, across the way that we have to think about data and data quality and how important it is. And then also about the way other people um, use the data and, and use the data to make better decisions. So yeah, I, I think I think that change to agility is a profound change. And, and, and it's, not, it's not a change in our industry, it's a change in industry. It's a change yeah, in the way, way things are being built. So if you look across you know, our major enterprises, all of the departments are trying to be more agile. It could be operations, it could be manufacturing, it could be uh, it could be marketing, it could be sales or whatever. Everyone is trying to work in a much more agile way. And whilst we are now fulfilling the re requirements from an insight, consumer insight department perspective, there was a real danger that for our industry, that if we didn't fulfill it, People wouldn't stop working in an agile way. They would just ignore consumer market research. So what they would do, and I've seen companies thinking about this, and there was a famous example, I can't remember who the brand was, but they had an, a consumer insight war room so that they could work in a much more agile way. And they had streams of data coming into it. And not Theory. one of those streams, not one of those streams was consumer insight data. Yeah, uh, it, you know, it was clickstream data, it was social media data, it was sales data, it was, you know, wh whatever it was, but it wasn't the data that we were providing because we couldn't stream it. And that's the thing that we have to do. Yeah, amen to that. And I think, you know, to close the topic of, of data and quality, 
we've been going in the reverse direction on this topic as an industry for way too long. I mean, if you're expecting to pay 75 cents to interview somebody, for that person to pay attention, for that person to give you thoughtful responses, and for the company that you push all the crap downhill for to care about quality, it, you got to wake up. This is a holistic supply chain issue. Um, but the thing that, so quality is obviously where we're at now. Companies like us are bracing for costs to go up because that's the right thing for the industry. Absolutely. The thing that excites me about what we could be doing with data, and it builds on your point about streaming is, we know a lot about people. If I know that you like cricket and you live just outside of North London and that you're a vegan and you like music and you like history and you enjoy going to the movies, by the way, these are all facts about Steve. Um, I can ask you very targeted questions when I have limited attention span from you. And, and if I connect those data sets together in an intentional way, it's not a fire hose data mine thing. It's a really intentional piece of, of research. But you know, I've, I've got invited to kick off the uh, SampleCon conference in about a month out in Los Angeles. But you know, the truth is, I'm going to go to that conference. I'm looking forward to it. But we won't be talking about the integration of first-party data and what's happening in the world. So uh, more, more to do there. All right, I want to talk about building a business for a minute. So most of our audience are corporate research people. We have a lot of people that um, are on the supplier side. Your background is not that of a technology executive. Um, neither is mine. Um, we're research guys who have built a tech business. I believe that's an advantage we have. We, we have had to figure out software in an industry that we know and love. You are an entrepreneur, always have been. You've built qualitative insights businesses, consulting companies. So you, you're not, you're not um, uncomfortable with the uncertainty of building a company. But what did you have to unlearn to make the shift? And I don't know that a lot of people knew you were going to make the shift to build a, you know, will be roughly $70 million company this year. What are some of the things that you had to take with you that you learned in your early years of building qual companies that you still maintain? But what are some of the things you had to unlearn to build a software company? Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, the, the companies I've built before, I'd been in, in agency life anyway. And so when I, well, when I was running a, a qualitative company or a hybrid company, I could do every job in that company. So we, we got to 15, 20, 40 people by the end. But I could do the job of everyone in there. I knew what everyone had uh, did. So I could help them do their job. I, frankly, I could help. I could get right in the weeds with everything, um, and and so it's a very different way of looking at it because now you have, I mean, we have 70, 80 developers. They are pretty much all smarter than me, doing something that is incredibly complex that I have no idea about. I, I did, as you know, send myself on a learn to code in a day course, so obviously became an expert after that. Um, you're also but, really but, good at unplugging things when they break I, and then plugging I, them back in. Well, you're you, turn, you turn it off and yeah. then you turn it back on again. Exactly. I mean, you're the best in the game at that, my friend. But, so, so I obviously I've learned some things around IT um, since since starting Zappy, but the reality is that I you have to go in with a humility of just not knowing and being able to ask questions uh, in a way that you didn't I didn't in my previous companies because I had answers. 
So now I'm approaching things much more from a questioning perspective than an answering perspective. And I think, I think that's the core of it. I think with, with software, there is, a, there is a period where you, you're just sort of blindsided by it and you just don't understand anything and you don't think you can input into it. You don't think you're useful in any way. Right. So you're just sort of learning from the developers. There does become a, a time where you realize that your insight, if, you, if described in the right way, is actually really helpful for them. Because the way, they, the way we describe, the way we uh, brief developers now is through you know, stories and epics, right? So what we're trying to describe is what does a customer want to be able to do with that piece of software? Give them empathy for the customer's problem, the customer's desire, where they want to take it, how they want to analyze the data, what types of uh, insights do they want to get out of it? And when you give a developer that insight, that understanding in that context, then actually they can create great software. And so over time, I think I, think I went through a sort of trough of uh, ignorance where I thought I was useless to a large swathe of the company, a large swathe of what we were trying to do, to a point where I've actually I found a role uh, helping supply the vision and where we want to go in terms of the products and the, and and, and where the market is going. And that is really useful for the development function. So I think it took a while to understand and to understand my role and, and where I could be useful and where frankly I was I was not useful at all. And so when you get to the bit about where you're not useful, get out of the way, right? Just right. just let them get on with the job because they're good at it. They're smart, they'll do it. And and particularly now that we've scaled, I mean, I was running 20, 30, 40 people companies before. Zappi is so much bigger, right? So we're almost 300 now. So there are large groups of people who are doing things that frankly have not had much or any input into. And you just have to have trust in those people to do the right thing. Now, how do they know how to do the right thing? As with what I was talking about with the developers, it's about stories and ethics. It's about painting a vision and a picture of where do we want to go? And that might be delivered through software it might be in terms of how we want to service our customers it might be in terms of how we want to manage the the, the business or the business intelligence the data that we sit on it's all of those things and you realize that it weirdly you go back to the roots of, of market research in in the sense that it's storytelling on top of data i mean that 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 becomes the job it's it's about creating an understanding of, of, of the vision of the company and where, of the vision of the product and where you want to go, and where you believe the market is going. And it's telling that story backed up by obviously data and insight from clients, from, from, from what's happening in the marketplace. So, so some, of it is, some of it is having the humility to just back away and let people get on with their job. And, and I think some of it is also um, having the strength of, strength of your beliefs to push forward on things that you think are important. That, yeah. that, that, that that's where the company's got to go and I, and I think you framed it in in the sense of me being a technology entrepreneur but I'd actually turn it round now I mean if you if you listen to Andreessen Horowitz right software is eating the world yep it's not it's not me as a software entrepreneur that's got to go through this it's every executive in every profession around the world right so, software is eating into every marketing operations uh, yep. market research uh, everything everything is becoming software everything is becoming software focused and and it's taking that same view i think of of understanding the the 
the capabilities of software and understanding where you want your team or your department to go and trying to make those things work effectively together. Yeah, I love it. You're right. Like the, the, it's every business is having to do it. I mean, there's gum companies that have subscription services, you know, like how many companies old brick and mortar is now an experience that you then go purchase online. I mean, it, it's, it's changing. And as I said, a few minutes ago, like, I think it's, it's while software is eating the world, unless we learn how to work with it, we won't get the full benefit. Right. So it's, I think equally about people in process. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can relate to a lot of the learnings, I, you know, on a personal note, I I've always come up kind of through customer facing work. And I was sharing this with Steve uh, a week ago or so as I've taken on, I mean, I've probably had a hundred different roles uh, that have been under three job titles in eight years. Cause when you're building a business, you just do what's in front of you and then you iterate and learn. But I've found as I've started to be, be more responsible for things I'm not an expert in, so much of what you say is true. And it's actually easier to be a good leader when you don't know the answer. So it's hard, like on a personal note, it's harder for me to be an empathetic coach to our sales team because in my head, I'm like, do that. <laughs> so I have to like really, whereas with like, I just spent a week and a half in South Africa with our engineering and product team. I don't know shit about engineering. So I just ask questions like, like, like my six-year-old would. And that helps them, I think, simplify it. But also you, you can fall back. And so, you know, our job is more about the direction and the what than, than anything else. Um, all right. So I always like to, uh, you know, so the method behind my madness here, I always send a discussion guide, but there's always one thing that comes up that I want to talk about that you're not prepared for. This is that time. I was out the other night in Austin, Texas, um, with the folks who are building Highlighter. They just won the IIX Innovation Exchange Award. Um, Dana, their CEO, is wonderful. She's fantastic. And I think they're solving a problem that nobody's really been able to solve about getting products in people's homes to test them. Uh, as you know, when anybody, when anybody asks us when we're going to build an IHUP capability, I get triggered and then remember all my PTSD. Um, but she said to me, I'd love to learn all the piles of shit you stepped into so we can step in different ones. So what are some things that you now know that you wish you knew over the course of this time? I'll share a few examples as well as, as we go, but what are like, you know, somebody's, somebody's at, to your point, doesn't matter if they're building a business or if they're inside of a business leading it. What are some things that you're like, I wish I did X earlier. I wish I didn't do Y at that time. So I go back to what I said earlier. I wish I'd have got into the uh, online sample uh, industry early. Um, I'm sure I, I'd have probably be sitting on a beach by now. And I, and I do think there is something about that. And I would, if, if I have offered any career advice to people, it is really important to look at look at what's going on around you. Look at what's going on in other companies. Look what seems to be pushing the barriers, the frontiers and try and get involved in that. It's just the best way to build a career is the, is the truth. It's the best way to do interesting and dynamic work. It's the best, it, it, so that, that's, that's one thing. I think having an understanding that being at the bleeding edge or the cutting edge, there's a reason they're called those things, they bleed. Yep, it, it hurts. hurts, it hurts. <laughs> you, you fuck up multiple times. And we've talked about this, um, learning from failure right so we, we've done presentations to the company where we've talked through 
you know, five or six times, I, I made absolutely fundamentally the wrong decisions. And, but I don't, I don't, do I wish I, I hadn't made that decision in some ways? I don't even know whether I'd, I'd say that. Do I wish um, someone had said, oh, actually, Steve, just go in that direction. That would have been fine, but I wouldn't have learned anything. So, so, so we built custom code for some clients early on. It was my decision. We loved these clients. We built some custom code for them. We hadn't done a lot of discovery. We didn't really understand whether they were going to use it. We didn't get commitment. We spent eight, nine months building it with a whole team. They used it twice and then didn't use it again because we didn't fundamentally understand what they wanted to do. It was the wrong business direction. We wasted tens of thousands of dollars and man hours at a time when we couldn't afford it um, to do that. But it made us really, really clear about what we wanted to do afterwards. Yeah. Right. Did, did we burn a couple of bridges? Yeah, maybe. Did we do some? Did, did, was it a problem for us cash flow wise at the time? Yes, it was difficult, but it made us very clear about the direction we wanted to go in, in a way that if you'd have gone, oh, I don't think we should build custom code. I think we don't want to be that sort of shop. I think we should. You wouldn't have had the commit the commitment that we had after making those mistakes. And and as we say internally in the business all the time, it is absolutely fine to make mistakes. There's only one thing that's not fine, and that's not learning from it. 100%. So make as many mistakes as you can. We, we have a very experimental culture. We will always encourage um, uh, that experimentation. We have a mantra of kill, scale, or amend, right? So and kill, if you, if you experiment, you try something, and you find out it doesn't work, kill it. Great. Wonderful. You, you experiment, you try it, find out it does work, you scale it. Great. Wonderful. The only bad outcome is amend because you can get on this doom loop of, of continuous amendment. Yep. So actually, there are lots of occasions where things have that I wish I hadn't done something. But in the round, do I wish I hadn't had the experience of doing the wrong thing? I think probably not. It totally resonates with me. Like, you know, it, it is easy to look back. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, but some of the bruises they form who you are. And I, you know, I, I look forward to the next several years of bruises together, Steve. We'll, we'll learn some <laughs> shit we don't know now. I think one thing for me is chasing cash, chasing venture money, chasing growth above everything else. And that there's always an inherent tension, whether you're a publicly traded company or you're a startup of you got to pay the bills. And as soon as you welcome people to your cap table, for those who aren't familiar with banker speak, by the way, I don't like banker speak either. Those are investors that own a percentage of your company that end up forming your board of directors. You have to be careful who you bring in when, and, I'm, and that is not a deterrent on anybody who's on our table. We have wonderful investors, but as soon as you, as soon as you invest and sell a thesis of growth, that is the expectation. And I see a lot of businesses, and we did fall into this trap of let's raise money before we have clear product market fit. And I'll tell you, it's one of the things I admire most about Qualtrics is that they just built slow for years and years and years, and then they threw gas on it. Um, but part of why I go on this tangent is short-termism, you know, like it, so uh, I don't know how many people listening know this, but we had about two years, maybe even three, Steve, where we weren't, we weren't clear if we were going to achieve our ambition. 
Reason being, we pivoted from being an app store to an enterprise platform. It took three years. It didn't take a quarter. It didn't take six months. It didn't, you know, it took three years. And there's a, a famous Bill Gates quote of like, people underestimate what they can do in a year, overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in three. And it's just one of these tensions that you have to balance is like, you got to pay bills, you got to hit numbers, but really hard, innovative problems take trial and error and learning and patience. And so it's a, we talk about this a lot, this tension between pace and patience that you kind of constantly have to, uh, to throttle. That's quite interesting. Yeah, I, th I think it, it, it is interesting, particularly when you're trying to be a fast growth tech company, right? So, so we're trying to be in that bucket. Um, and we've had periods where that's very true and periods where it hasn't been anywhere near as true. And so growth means multiple things. So there is just simply a, an element of growth, which is about revenue. Right? So you're making more money and you're pursuing that money. In some sense, I, I don't think I've ever been obsessed by growth from the measure of just money, although it is an obvious measure that's important. There is a measure of growth, which is about, about customer, um, customers liking your product, right? If we're building something great, we should have growth. I mean, it should be there. And of course, it's one of the metrics you're going to look at because we think we think our software is the, be the best in the world. And if we were low growth, I'd be sitting here going, well, why, why are these clients not liking it if we built True. the best software in the world? True. Um, so, so I think, I, I mean, I'm, I, the, the more I get involved um, with investment bankers and VCs, they, they look at the world in a really interesting way. It tends to be, they tend to be very smart, but they tend to look at it in a very simplistic way and they expect growth. But I don't, I don't even think in their mind, it's simply about the revenue growth. The revenue growth is an outcome of great product market fit. Yep. And, and, and the only reason you would have not high growth if you have a great product is that you've got a poorly functioning sales and marketing motion. So it, it makes the business structure and whether it's going to be successful or not, very simple to understand. So it's either in product or it's in sales and marketing. It's in one of those two places. Um, and, and if everything's going great, then you know they're both working and everything not going great, you've got a problem in one of those and you've got to go and fix it. So um, yeah, I, it's, yeah it's, a, it's an interesting space and it's interesting listening to them and how they diagnose businesses yeah. and business problems. But it, it, it totally resonates. If you have product market fit, you have strong retention. For those of you who, who aren't familiar with kind of some of the SaaS metrics, get familiar with them because software is eating the world. <laughs> Net retention is the percentage of your growth that, uh, so if you, if you had a hundred rubies last year and you only had 90 from the same customers, that's, that's not good. It means you have a leaky bucket, but if you have a hundred, 120, um, which we happen to be very fortunate in that case, um, it means that you could turn off sales and marketing and just grow your company. Um, and that is a sign of product market fit. So then you go, okay, once I have that, well, now I want to advertise and market and sell and, and I think a lot of businesses try to get growth. It's like the classic linear st startup journey. Raise money, sell a bunch of stuff, panic and realize half your customers quit and then go, oh crap, we got to fix that. <laughs> and then a lot of companies die there. I mean, it's why so many businesses don't get beyond 10 million or what have you. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite interesting. All right, the next, so let's say, let's say five to seven years because of our point of underestimating time. What's going to happen in this industry from your perspective? What are the key things that need to happen? And, and weave into your answer 
your vision for our role in that and, and what happens next. Yeah, I, and maybe I'll, I'll just indulge me. I'll, I'll go a, again a little bit back into history. So if when, when, I history, first, folks. <laughs> when I first joined the industry, I remember going to a market research training session. It was done by the MRS in, in the UK. And this is the early 90s. And we had a presentation from someone at Procter & Gamble, I think it was. And it was, the market, it was a marketing, senior marketing person. And um, the senior marketing person said, uh, what the job of insight, the job of insight, it is to be the marketer's accountant. Now, I thought about it at the time. I didn't, I didn't really want to be an accountant, so I wasn't overly pleased with the idea. Um, but the interesting thing reflecting on it is that what one of the things he was saying is you supply us with the data. You supply us on the, with the data to work out whether our brands are doing well, whether we should advertise more or less, whether where we should put up, where we should put our retail activity, what, whether we should launch a new product or service. So the data that a CMO relied on was mostly consumer insight data coming from market research companies. Now, you go, you ask a CMO that now, where's your data coming from? I'm not even sure that they would answer consumer insight at all. So yeah. they would say clickstream data. They would say social media data. They would say sales data. They would say uh, uh, other forms of streaming data coming from their CRM system or their ERP system or whatever it was. They, they have a continuous updated understanding of where their brand is and how it's doing and how healthy it is. And they can predict sales next week and from sales data previously. So we have lost our job, lost our job as being the central data supplier to the marketing organization. I think in the next five years, we have the chance to get back that role. And I think we lost it because in a digital world, there is such a profusion of instant data. And instant data is so satisfying when you're trying to move fast that you would take instant, but not necessarily very insightful data over more insightful data that took a while. And that's why we've lost out as being so powerful and having such a strong role within the marketing organization. I think we have a chance to turn that around. So what I would like to see our industry do, and absolutely Zappi should be at the forefront of that in my view, but the industry needs to do is be the streaming source of consumer insight that informs every decision that a marketing organization makes, whether it's what ad to produce, uh, what, what to do with a brand, uh, a new brand proposition, what packaging to create, what price point, what target audience, what retailers to distribute in. All of the decisions that they're making now that are made on the basis of data, but not necessarily consumer insight data. We need to get back into that room. And the only way we can do, do that is to fully embrace technology. And what I think is really exciting now is that increasingly we're seeing clients starting to drive that agenda, both on the marketing side and on the consumer insight side. I think you've got a new, a new breed of consumer insight manager who recognizes that technology and platform is essential but for them to be to play the role in the, their organization that they want to play. They want to be at the table. They want to be there when the decisions are being made. And the way for 
them to do that is to be able to supply brilliant insight when it is needed to whom it's needed. And, and the only solution to that is technology. So what I hope, I have a very, I think, positive vision for the industry, which is that we, we play a much, much stronger role in the decision-making of our mainstream clients and our large enterprise clients, um, and that we start driving the agenda again in a way that in some sense we did when I first joined the industry. I think we, have, we had more of a backseat driver role then, but we were supplying all the data. Now I'd like us to have a front seat role where we're creating the agenda off the back of streaming data. Yeah, and it's, it's almost like, it, it, it almost doesn't matter who owns the data, right? So I think the reason why I believe you that this is possible is the, the appropriately skilled insights people of the future will be grounded in business acumen, will have a litany of empathy for community and culture, and we'll be able to look at trends data, sales data, experience management data, pre-launch data that currently sits in PowerPoint decks and weave that into strategy. And then the people who are more grounded in technology and systems will have careers doing data engineering work to pull it together. I don't yep. think you can, I think those are two different roles, but that's the, that's the thing the people who write in SQL all day might not have the skill set for. And they're wonderful, but it's the empathy to take all this information and say, okay, I see all that, but we're going right for these reasons. Because it's, it's not just what the math says, it's, it's the qual data, the quant data, the social media mentions, the, 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 the testing and learning data. Um, but also, like, you know, we talk about this a lot, the ops sales measurement people are overserved with data, but they're, they're not afforded the benefit of the two-way relationship between what they create and how it performs and how those things connect back. And um, I, I think it's a huge opportunity for us as a business to take an analog industry and connect it. I, I would also say, I think that there's something about the, the mind of the researcher, the curiosity that's at the heart of being a market researcher. Yep. The, and, and the fact that we've always dealt in multiple data streams. So we've always dealt in, uh, you know, open-ended questions, close-ended questions. We've always had qualitative and quantitative. And we've always tried to amend, align those data sets. <clears throat> so it's, it's sort of in our DNA. And we've always tried to set, tell stories on top of that data. And that's why I think as, as, a, as a, an industry, as a profession, we have a chance to really thrive in this new world because what is it? It's multiple data sources and people need to connect them and tell a story about what they are and give direction of where, where the business should go and what decisions should be made. And there's no other real section of business, maybe BI, but BI is not natural storytelling function. Right. Right. It's more of a databasing function and actually could well be heavily integrated with consumer insight um, it enterprises, I think, in the future. Um, so we've got a real chance to, to shine. I think it's really about, uh, we haven't tended to be as pushy as, as, as a group of people that maybe we need to be, but I think we can play a really much more essential role than we've ever played before in history. Uh, I couldn't agree more. All right, so we do something at Zappy a lot where we, we uh, identify a problem or an opportunity space 
we get around a table, we talk about it, we prioritize it, we make sure we're all agreeing to something before we go do it. One of the techniques that we use is something called a pre-mortem. So um, we, we thought we had this opportunity a year from now, we screwed it up, why? So let's do it. It's five years in the future. There are very few insights departments left in the Fortune 100. Software is eating the world with programmatic data without empathy, which I think would be really sad for culture. Why? What, what are the things that get in our way of achieving that industry vision, which I'm 100% behind? But what are some of the things that, that fuck it up if we, if we get it wrong? So, so I'd, I'd probably highlight two. I think one is, the, the first is that we didn't grasp the opportunity to, to uh, lead the data, uh, the data strategy. So clients are amalgamating data streams at the moment. They're trying to integrate multiple data streams into a DMP or a CDP or whatever they're trying to integrate it into. At the moment, that is a data engineering activity, right? So it's someone in SQL. It needs to be a data valuing uh, job. It needs to be someone saying, not just I'm going to align that data, but I'm going to make that data valuable. There is absolutely no reason why it shouldn't be the insight department because look at the name, right? <laughs> the clue is right. in the name. It's about taking that data and making it insightful. We should be all over that um, and telling stories and mining data and creating insight right? on, on those multiple data streams. And there is, again, as I said just now, there is no one else, I think, that is perfectly equipped to do it in the way that we can be. So the first, first thing I think we would fuck up is not trying to take that role and i think we absolutely have to take that role and that's really important to do within enterprises really soon really soon the second thing i think is 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 missing the wood for the trees right so you have to take that data and then tell stories so we need the empathetic qualitative storytelling mindset on top of the the we're helping understand this data stream and it's that combination of skills that that, as I said, we've always had, but we've been held back by, by being a bit too demure sometimes about our role in this and, and letting and, and letting others take take the lead. Um, so, so those are the, probably the things I think will hold us back. As again, I, I, as I said, I th I'm optimistic because I think there's enough people who start who've started to see this as as where the industry is going, and are trying to impose themselves on it. And I absolutely think that's that's what the industry has got to do. Yeah, I completely agree. So Mike, I'll add two quick ones. We try to make the people who connect all the systems be the same people who have to curate the thinking. And there, there, there is, I think, a specialization afoot here. Um, the, and then the second one is we don't, because we, you know, it's funny, marketing as an industry and insights as an industry have one problem in common. We suck at marketing ourselves. <laughs> We don't, we don't effectively compel change. I, I, had a, I had the chance to meet a woman um, from a business that is a telehealth company. They're going through onboarding with us. So I had a coffee with her uh, recently. And she's in the board meeting because the company's seen the value of synthesizing learning. And so when she says, I need to spend a lot of money to buy Zappy, like, yeah, done, go do it. Um, and so I think, you know, 
the insights leaders on the phone or the ones who are going to be leading tomorrow, work on your assertiveness, your business acumen, your executive presence, because you're going to have to sell this change because McKinsey and Bain and Deloitte are telling your board, do this, but they don't actually know how to do it. The board doesn't know how to do it. You're the one, as Steve says, who's best placed to do it. Um, but don't, don't, don't miss that opportunity. Steve, thank you so much. Thank you for a wonderful eight years of fun. I can't wait for the next six, eight years. I will, I will not make it eight years before you're uh, back on the Inside Insights podcast. It's been a long time coming, um, but it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. Thank everybody. you. Thank you, Ryan. So I had a lot of fun doing that conversation with Steve. I actually, I did an internal podcast with Steve that nobody even heard except for Kelsey and a few other members of the marketing team over the summer. And it was because we were restating the vision of the company. When we started the company, it was all about automating the world of market research. And we both realized it wasn't ambitious enough. And so we really want to help and empower creators to make magic happen. In order to get that out of his head, I had to get him comfy. So we did a podcast that nobody ever listened to. I was like, let's do a legit one. I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, but as always, I want to know what you took away from our crazy, Patricia. So you got some takeaways for us. What'd you, what'd you, what'd you think? You know, I... I love what I, the two of you just chat. And even when we're just at work, when I was working there and you guys would just talk, it was just something you'd listen to because there's always so much to learn. Now I got to listen, I got to listen to your interview and I have six buckets of learning because at the end of the day, what we want to do is we want to give our, our audience, our listeners, things that they can take home so that they can build the business. And the title of the okay. you guys um, have for all of it was just a conversation about the industry, where it's been, where it's going. So I've got six buckets and my bonus. Don't let, don't forget my bonus. It's short and sweet and powerful. So you ready I for like the buckets? It. Bucket I'm number ready. one. Let's, go, let's, start with, girl. let's start with the past. Long, long time ago when the industry was in its infancy. What happened then? The corporate landscape was all about adapting technology, using tech platforms um, or other operating systems from agencies, you know, build, you know, buying sample programming services. So brands were either insourcing programming surveys on, you know, Qualtrics, SurveyMonkey or Decipher, things like that, or they were hiring full service agencies. So it was like the two, the two options. Market research at best was ignored and at worst was used as CYA, just saying, right? So at that time, in the 80s and 90s, face-to-face, -face, wow, move to telephone. So we went from eight weeks to survey to five to six weeks. Oh, life-changing, right? Then in the early 2000s, he's reminding us that it went online. So it was faster and cheaper, but it really didn't change the way sites were used. 2015 and coming forward, we're getting closer to the present, pure full-scale automation, right? So now we've got research at one week or less, which brings me to bucket number two. All of these things brung surprises. You asked him, what surprised you? What didn't you foresee 10 years ago? He's like, oh my God, all of these changes that I just talked about from the past to now, he did not foresee that although they were solving a core client um, problem, you know, market research was slow and too expensive, right? The, su the surprise was that faster and cheaper completely changed the way enterprise used the information. Agility enabled design thinking, which enabled faster creation, iteration, and learning over time. The collapse in timing made things possible, totally new, and created something called he called research sprints, like software sprints, which is something that totally surprised him. Something else that surprised him, sample. I think you had a lot to talk, a lot to say on this one. Sample went from being one of the biggest problems to being the essence of data quality. 
right? Now that, that, you know, things are becoming more agile, we're testing and learning in quick succession, right? Test, optimize, test, iterate. The comparison data is much closer in. So the data quality is more important than ever. So yep. the iteration factor, oh, absolutely. And you hadn't thought of that. The iteration factor um, had add-on effects, which made us change the way we thought about data. It changed the requirements we were placing on data quality. It changed the way data was being used to make better decisions. And in general, this iteration and this newness changed the way things were being built. Those were like the big surprises for him. That was bucket number two. I was like, oh yeah, he's right. I hadn't thought of it that way. Ready for number three? Talking shop. He's like, okay, guys, all of you guys building business. This is where it's got. Let's talk about how to build the business, right? I love how the Brits said learning, unlearning, and adapting. And the Bostonians said, kill, scale, amend. You both meant the same thing. There are things that we have to, you know, learn, unlearn, and adapt. So let's talk about those. Go with go in to the business with strength and your beliefs and the humility of sometimes you just don't know. When you're building business, there's things that you know. But I mean, when we went from market research to tech, which is what the shift was for him, is there's so many things you just don't know. So he has, he, I love this phrase, adopt a questioning versus answering perspective. Gold. Questioning versus answering. Because he used to answer all the questions. Now he just learns from experts, just being the operative word in that sentence, right? And finds new ways to contribute. That's how he's doing it, answering, asking the questions. And his role now is to paint the picture or the vision of the business and the industry with where he wants it to go, shares all this with data and insight from the marketplace so that the people who are experts, the software developers, they can understand and be empathetic for the customer so they can create better, right? I love how we talked about using stories and epics so that the developers would understand it's a different language. You, I believe said, Kill when the experiment doesn't work. Simple, to the point. Scale if the experiment works. Check, but, huge but, huge. Be careful with amend. Don't fall into the doom loop of amend and amend and amend. Continuous amendment can kill you because you'll never get out of it. So you got to amend, but you got to be careful with amending. All right? Well, part of the reason is a lot of times people use the word experiment to try stuff. But if you don't you know, if you're a scientist, you have a clearly defined set of success criteria. Yeah. And a timeline. And so it's like, did, did, did it work or did it not? Amend usually means either that didn't happen. In best case, it means you learn that it didn't work, but you have some ideas of the next experiment. Yep, exactly. And if you're in business, you can't be amending the whole time because you'll go broke. And all the people who depend on you, not only because they're working with you or because they want the product, they're not going to get what they need. So absolutely, that's a big one. That, that's a huge but. Then you guys started riffing about software. I love that part. You know, I put a link into the notes and hopefully we can put it into the, into the notes of the podcast. You talked about Andresine. I don't know if I'm saying that name right, Horowitz. So I put a link into him because it's all about software eating the world. You guys talked about mm -hmm. software and how essential it is, right? When you're building business to understand what you want for your company and for your customers and the capabilities of technology, because if you don't know those two things separately first, you'll never know how to merge them. That was so insightful. I really loved listening to that. And I think everybody who's building business understands that. You also 100%. talked about something that was one of you. I think it was, it might've been you. You said brick and, brick and mortar is not going away, 
but it's an experience that you have before purchasing online. So it's important for every, anybody who's building business to understand the relationship about, of those two, the symbiotic relationship of those two, so that you can understand that it's equally about people and process in order to get the benefit of both. If you don't understand both, you can't get the benefit of both. So I thought that was impressive. That was impressive. I like talking shop like that because we're all building business in one way or the other. Yeah. Ready for bucket four? Let's go to tomorrow. What's happening tomorrow? I like how it's almost like he's looking into like a crystal ball. The two of you are going back and forth. He's like tomorrow <laughs> insights is going to have a permanent seat at the decision-making table, creating the agenda. He didn't say that at first. He said at the end. So I pulled it up because at the end of the day, that's what he wants to happen tomorrow. That's what he's making happen tomorrow. Let's decipher that one again. Permanent seat at the decision makers table, creating the agenda, not following, not taking orders, all of that. Those three very important because we're going to be the streaming source of consumer and sharper insight that informs every decision the marketing organization makes. Communication, products, packaging, services, yada, yada, yada. Right. And we're going to do this via insights creating an insights supply chain. I'd never heard that, an insights supply chain. I like that, right? Because that's what's going to connect the research and data states intentionally so that we can, the industry, deliver holistic insights, which means joining clickstream, ad hoc, social, sales, all that together so that we can have holistic data, right? And all that's going to take us to real-time brand understanding, right? Not just the picture, but just permanent, a permanent mm -hmm. video, a permanent picture, a permanent film of the the brand health, right? Data that predicts sales reliably is what's going to happen, right? I'm going to expect it. Supplying enterprise and insight with insightful data, not just permanent data, insightful data, data I can use because the only way that's going to happen is a full integration of the multi-channel data with technology as an enabler. We're bringing the goddamn data to life. End yes. of sentence, right? That's what's going to happen in the future. Bucket number five. This was my favorite to summarize. Like that is, you're not supposed to have favorites. I'm sorry, but this you one had a favorite. Fucked. I did. Bucket number five is my favorite this time. It's all about things he wishes he knew earlier. So I read this and reread this and I listened and re-listened. And this is my summary of the things that he wishes he learned earlier, because this is like, we've said, we've talked about this in the past as advice to a younger self, right? But he did this all in the spirit of building a business. So the significance of pushing barriers, the sharpness oh, yeah. of the cutting edge, the importance of the online sample industry, the value of learning from experts, the worth of making mistakes, the consequence of iterating and then getting back into the ring, the wisdom of building slow and then accelerating, the dangers of short-termism, the multiple facets of growth and the essential symbiosis of product with sales and marketing. That was amazing. Those, are like, was my favorite? those are like memes. I like this. I like what you're doing over there. You go, girl. <laughs> hey, I take this very seriously. All this learning, I love it. So last bucket before the bonus, ready? You asked him, what's getting in our way, homie? Because you know, we get in our way. Well, there's four big ones. We didn't grab the opportunity to lead the data, we being insights, the data strategy and integration of multiple data streams early. We should have grabbed that ring long time ago. Let's do that so that we don't get into our own way. Number one. Number two, we're missing the wood for the trees. 
I like that because you took that very common saying and you were talking about, let's take that data, but then let's tell stories. We get to, we have to tell empathetic stories, stories that build empathy, build understanding, but it's all about qualitative and quantitative data merging together to tell the story, right? It's a combination of skills that if anybody has, we have, and we're getting it oh, our yeah. own way because we've let other people take the helm. We've let other people connect the dots. We've let other people lead the way, right? I'm sorry. We can take the lead. We're getting in our own way by not stepping up right? And the last thing that's getting in our way of our vision, we don't effectively compel change. We must effectively compel change because we yeah. suck at marketing ourselves. That's getting in our way. Now, watch this play on words. Drop the mic, but I'm not going to drop the mic. She's not I've ready to drop the mic content. yet. She got the not bonus yet. content. Can you call, so, in, so I know you had six plus one, but in honor of Boston Celtics, this, yeah. this young man right here, number seven, yeah. can we call it number yeah. seven just for today? Yes. Good luck for yes. your boy. Absolutely. Luck for my boy. Bonus content seven. Seven is the bonus content. How's that? Shout out to Jalen Brown. 40 points. Shout out to, <laughs> so we talk about things that get in our way. Now, being a good leader in your new business, you asked him how to do that. Now, remember, I just said that we have things that get in our way. Well, being a good leader. You got to do what's needed. Find out what's needed, not what you want, what you need, what's needed right away. Hire the right people. You don't have to know it all, right? Learn, iterate, learn, iterate. That's how, what's what we're telling enterprises to do. That's what we're telling the marketing teams to do. Do it yourself. That's how you're going to be a good leader. Ask questions to simplify the process and then get out of the fucking way. Yes. And let people do their jobs. That's what being a good leader is. Now I can drop the mic. I'm going to do a mic drop emoji. I just found one. Hold on, ready? Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this, much, this episode as much as we did producing it. Our next episode is with Michelle Gansley. Um, if you know me, you might be wondering, how the hell did it take four seasons to get Michelle on your podcast? Um, because Michelle is a very, very close friend of mine. Um, I was waiting for the right time. And this is the right time. Michelle and I are going to share a conversation we had in Austin, Texas, about where we go for inspiration and how we lead and some of the things that we've learned along the way from making mistakes. It's vulnerable. It's real. It's a lot of fun. And we'll see you next time. Um, we've got three episodes left. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you tell all your friends and give us a good, good old rating because the ratings help with the algorithms and you can, so more people can find us. Kelsey, thank you. Patricia, thank you. We'll see you all in the next one.